Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Game Grid Lehigh. Game Grid Lehigh is an amazing place to buy and sell Magic the Gathering singles. Whether you're building a new cube or crafting your new constructed deck, Game Grid Lehigh is the place to do it. Got a draft coming up with some friends? Buy some seal product here and get it quick. So click the referral link in the description to help out the show. And don't forget to use the code DRAFTPRO10 to get 10% off on your next order at gglehigh.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm going to be talking about drafting kind of blue-green X domain in Dominaria United. So this is the version of domain that actually plans to cast cards of a lot of colors, rather than merely having assorted extra land types for the actual domain main keyword. I think those are kind of different directions. I think green-red is more likely interested in just having land types for the domain keyword, and uh, green-blue is more interested in cast having the mana to cast cards in other colors. There are some exceptions to that. Also, what exactly constitu- constitutes blue-green when you're actually just five colors uh, is... A bit of a philosophical question sometimes. Like, it might be the case that you are philosophically aligned with what the blue green deck is doing, even if it's not necessarily the case that most of your cards are blue and/or green. So, before I get too far into this, uh, let me remind everyone that the notes that I'm uh, referencing and prepared for this episode are available at patreon.com/slash drafting archetypes if you want to follow along. And now let me try to get into this. So since this deck kind of definitionally can cast anything, there are unsurprisingly a lot of ways to build it. So this episode, I need to struggle with the fact that I'm talking about a lot of different decks and I want to try to find a way to usefully talk about them kind of together and separately and what they have in common and what the kind of like the major divergences are. Kind of no matter what, if you're in this space, you need to pay a lot of attention to your double pip cards. So like cards that cost like green, green or black, black or whatever. For the most part, you want to avoid them unless they are really, really powerful bombs. They ask a lot of your mana base. Uh, It'll be harder to cast them and harder to cast everything else the more of them you have. And you'll need to prioritize cards that are better at fixing for them rather than being better at fixing for a diversity of color requirements. What that means is if you're playing cards in four or five different colors and you have cards that let you search for a land or otherwise choose a single extra color to fix for, you're probably going to first be concerned with grabbing colors you don't have, especially if that's in the form of grabbing cards that have basic land types and some of your cards have the domain main keyword, you're obviously going to want to be powering those up as quickly as possible. So if you're missing your second black for an extinguished light and you're missing your first blue for whatever blue spells you have and an extra count on your domain, you're usually going to want to like take an island off of a Flurifer's Vine Wall or a Scout the Wilderness or whatever uh, before you would take a Swamp. 
And so you're making it like it's less likely that you're going to get that second black early. Whereas if you're fixing with stuff like Relic of Legends and Salvage Mana Worker that simultaneously get you the second pip of something that you might already have and uh, give you access to a color like the colors that you were missing, then you can get away with double pip stuff more. So the more you're playing double pip stuff, the more you want to prioritize that like hard five color fixing, um, like Salvage Mana Worker and uh, Grotto and um, Relic of Legends and even Meteorite. Whereas the more you're single pip and have the domain keyword, the more you want to prioritize stuff that's going to find you your missing land types, even if that means committing to, well, this card that could get me every, you know, any color, you know, I have to choose one instead of, I get any instead of every. So you want to pay attention to what your mana requirements are, how much you care about lands, and then that'll inform which fixing cards you want to prioritize over which other fixing cards. And of course, remember that that's not always only relevant to when you see both of them in the same pack. It's also just uh, throughout the draft, you'll have an option to take a lot of different cards that fix and when to dedicate a pick to fixing versus dedicating it to removal or a good blocker or whatever else. You know, how, how much... You want to go out of your way to find each kind of fixing depends on what your mana is asking of you. Does your mana want land types uh, or does your mana want mana symbols for casting costs? Um, and those are slightly different considerations. If you're anywhere in this space where you're trying to actually cast cards of lots of different colors, the multicolor fix stuff uh, like the things that give you more than one additional color of mana access, which is a weird way to describe impulse, but impulse is kind of the bottom of the barrel of stuff in that category. Like impulse is worse at that than Floriferous Vinewall is worse at that than Sprouting Goblin is worse at that than Relic of Legends. But all of those cards improve your mana more than taking a single extra dual land. With impulse, it can be close, but if you're trying to cast cards of five different colors, you basically can't get it done with only dual lands. You need some of the hard fixing. Whereas if you're, say, the red-green deck that's, you know, red-green and land-type friends for domain, you might want your only fixing to be dual lands because you don't want to spend mana getting additional colors rather than getting power and toughness into play. And you don't need any particular other color. You just want some diversity of land types in play. So it's less important to be able to like find whatever you need and more important to just have some types around. So where the red-green domain deck is going to prioritize duels more highly, this deck will still definitely want some duels because they're kind of free real estate in terms of uh, space in your deck since they're replacing basic lands to improve your mana base. But they do less heavy lifting than the dedicated five color cards. So I've had some of these decks where I have 
fewer non-basic lands than it would look like you want. But I've been able to make my mana work by prioritizing stuff like Salvage Mana Worker that do really, really heavy lifting and kind of forgive you for not uh, having the um, dual lands in a way that lets you really prioritize bombs over fixing early and then still you can salvage your draft with cards like Salvaged Mana Worker if dual lands are being taken highly at the table and so you don't have like the access to that that you want. Um, this format is very good at providing another way if you know what to look for and you're willing to work for it. If lands are contested, take like the artifact and hard draw type, I mean, card selection type fixing and get it done. So th there are a lot of different ways to make your mana work and a lot of success at drafting domain decks is going to come down to having a coherent plan and strategy to account for the specific mana needs of your deck. And of course, there's, you know, a negotiation with the cards you're taking where you don't necessarily know what you're, you know, you're figuring out your mana capabilities and your mana requirements kind of at the same time and or alternately where, you know, you're drafting and as you add a card that makes fixing easier, uh, you or makes your, you know, gives you better mana, you might then be more willing to add a card that requires better mana um, or puts more pressure on your mana base. And so you can kind of like start conservative and, you know, go in steps back and forth on, okay, now I did this thing that puts pressure on my mana base. Now I took this card that relieves that pressure. Now I took this thing that puts pressure, relieves pressure, and just, you know, make sure that you're keeping, you know, balance where you're going to end up with something that where you have a deck that can accommodate the requirements of the spells. By default, you're primarily interested in bombs, removal, and fixing, and then the rest of your cards are likely cards that replace themselves, like Impulse and Espionage and Shadow Prophecy and Phyrexian Rager and Vine Shaper Prodigy. And then in a pinch, just like stuff to fill out your curve, like later on you might figure out like, oh, I don't have enough two drops, I don't have enough four drops or whatever, and just find some, you know, creatures that are reasonable at blocking that slot in there. But, you know, the more of your deck can be kind of bombs, removal, and fixing, uh, the better spot you're going to be in uh, to a large extent. That said, it's possible to have, like, more aggressive versions of this deck. I think Rootwalla is kind of the big indicator or something there. Like, there are kind of, like, actual dedicated five-color decks that use Rootwalla well. And there are decks that it's not good in, and it's good in the more aggressive ones. Rootwalla generally wants a low curve because it would like you to have mana free at some point for its ability. I guess the, the Rootwalla question segues for me somewhat into the Jodas Codex question. Jodas Codex is a very heavy card in terms of the extent to which it weighs on the direction of a deck. Jodas Codex is powerful, but uh, appropriate for some decks and not others. Jodas Codex wants you to have a very cheap, like it, it, 
it gives you the ability to spend so much extra mana over the course of the game by drawing more cards that it uh, is best if the cards that it's drawing are cheap so that you can cast all of them and so that you're not behind when you play it. And it also doesn't want your cards to draw cards. Uh, it will give you all the card draw that you need. And so you want to, you know, minimize your other cards that say draw a card. That can lead to a problem where you're a deck that has like a lot of one-for-ones and cheap stuff because that's what the codex wants, but you don't have other card draw. And so what happens if you don't draw the codex? And that's where Rootwalla is a good friend of Codex because it's a cheap card that can just kind of trade off. It like is threatening, so your opponent might like use their mana to trade a card with it. But then also, if you don't find your Codex, it's a mana sink. You can, you know, play some amount of like impulse type stuff that's not very expensive, not a lot of card draw, and helps find your Codex. But um, you want to be careful, you know, it basically Codex wants you to not have like Shadow Prophecies and Phyrexian Espionages, which incidentally also implies that Codex and Telerian Terror are not generally good friends. If you get a really good Codex deck that's just tons and tons of cheap removal spells, then you might be able to use a Telerian Terror. But for the most part, Telerian Terror wants you to have as many impulses and espionages as possible, which are the exact opposite of what Codex wants. Codex, as far as the expensive creatures, would prefer something like a Sojourner. On that note, I think one of the major things that you want to think about is which expensive creatures you're trying to support, or which of the cost reduction commons um, you're trying to support. Those cards are really powerful and should strongly inform most decks. The domain decks kind of, you know, naturally are most likely good at supporting uh, Sojourner, but the others, they have the ability to support, and you want to figure out uh, which ones you're about and to what extent you're about them. And sometimes you'll look for overlaps, like Eerie Soul Tender uh, is useful for enabling both Necromass and Tolerant Terror to different extents. If you're playing the right kind of game, you can do both of those. If you're playing the right kind of game, you can do both Phalanx and Necromass. If you have a lot of token-making spells, you can do Phalanx and Tolerant Terror. But you want to make sure that you're not playing very many of those cards that you aren't using very well, and the more you are using them well, the better it is to have a lot of that stuff. And so those things can be another like class of card that can weigh heavily on your deck construction in terms of once you have it, trying to optimize it. Tricks in this format are so good that they're often pretty good here, even in those kinds of decks that I was talking about that are looking for like bombs, removal, fixing. Those decks are not unhappy to have like a take up the shield or a Gaia's Might. Gaia's Might can just function as a remove as a one mana removal spell so often, especially if you're playing stuff like Floriferous Vine Wall that your opponent's not going to think twice about attacking into, and then you can just block Gaia's Might, kill their attacker. 
um, with, you know, just one mana that you have, you know, very easy to leave up. Take up the shield. These decks are very likely to have creatures that have four or five or more power in play. And take up the shield can be a big tempo swing and big life swing. Life gain, I think, is just really important in any controlling deck in any format. And that certainly applies here. If you're playing a long game against decks that are kind of good at getting chip shots in, you'll often kind of stabilize at a low life total. And then there will be some pressure to like close the game before your opponent finds a burn spell or a trample trick or something. But if you, if part of your turning the corner involves drawing into stuff that's gaining you life more than your opponent's drawing into stuff that's making you lose life, you can kind of get to the point where you're no longer like in the danger zone and that can uh, give you much better inevitability. So there are a lot of ways to gain life in this format. It doesn't have to be take up the shield. You know, when you're thinking about all the boxes to check to cover all your bases in a control deck, you want to think about life gain as one of those boxes. And so if you don't have enough Urborg Repossessions or Sorian Geysers or Moss Beard Ancients or whatever it is you're using that's going to gain you life, take up the shield's a good one to look for uh, to get access to that kind of thing. For the most part, I like Essence Scatter a little bit less in these decks than I do in most blue decks. It's not to say it's bad, but having a bunch of tapped lands means that you're more likely to be behind and you're uh, more likely to be using all of your mana longer because you're kind of spending mana on these tapped lands. And between having less mana available to you over, you know, if it's like in the first five turns you have 10 mana to spend, right? Like one plus two plus three plus four plus five wait, is that five or is that 15? Whatever. Anyway, if, you know, you think you played two tap lands in there, that's two less mana that you have over the course of that game. That means that you're going to be further behind. It's much easier to leave mana up for a counter spell if you're not behind. Uh, so like Essence Scatter in general plays better the fewer tap lands you have and kind of the lower curve you have. And of course, very much the more instants you have. This deck is l often going to score poorly on multiple of those axes. That said, Essence Scatter is, you know, generally a card that's trading up on mana, which is a thing that you could be looking for if you're behind um, and kind of counts as a removal spell if you're just like looking for removal spells. So it's not unplayable here, just worse than it is in a lot of the other blue decks where it's great. People often ask me about numbers in mana bases. These are very, very rough guidelines. Uh, I, I don't want to like start throwing out numbers without heavy disclaimers. So when I count numbers, I'm counting mana sources. So that's lands that tap for that color of mana, but also that's, you know, salvaged mana worker adds plus one source to all of your colors. I'm just counting, you know, if I have drawn this card, does it mean that I have access to this color of mana? And then with something like Florifer's Vinewall, does it count is a function of how many things you have that it finds and the answer is it often counts as some fraction but we're you know all of this is kind of blurry enough that the fractions i mean we're not we're not dealing in enough precision that there's a clear yes or no to count it you count it some you also want to think about when you're counting your sources count your sources as a function of the turn that you want the mana on. 
So, like, if you're thinking about playing a two-drop that's only really good on turn two, then you wouldn't want to count Relic of Legends as a source for that card because it won't let you cast the card when you want to cast it. You can, you know, cast it as a fraction or count the card as being a fraction of its power level where you're like, well, how good is this on turn three or turn four? Really turn four. But, you you know, when you get your mana matters. I think you want like eight to nine cards that give you access to your primary colors, especially if you're counting on those colors to access your other colors. And then around seven sources for your lighter colors so the card, the colors that you know you're playing, like four to six cards of, uh, with no double pip stuff, that would be around seven sources. And then for cards that are like you know splashes, like or colors that are splashes, maybe you have like two cards of that color and two cards that have kickers of that color, maybe like four sources. But all of these are really really flexible, dependent on how long your games are, how many cards you expect to see in a game, how impactful the cards you're splashing are. And at the end of the day, really, you're just trying to have the best mana that you can. And that might mean more or fewer. If you're not in the ballpark of this, you should probably consider cutting some colors uh, to get to enough sources for the things that you're trying to play. Or maybe adding a land or whatever. Checking in on the stats on 17 lands briefly, I looked at commons that were successful in five color decks. So some commons that were successful broadly in five color decks, I'll break this down a little bit further, but first I just wanna get out the cards that we're talking about. Vine Shaper Prodigy, that's the one in a green kicker, look at it's one in a blue, uh, two two that looks at three cards and puts one in your hand. Talus Lookout, the three two flyer that uh, draws one of two cards and it dies. Tolarian Geyser, the bounce ability gains three. Shadow Prophecy, the look at cards equal to domain, put two of them in your hand, the rest in your graveyard for two and a black instant. Phyrexian Espionage, the divination with kicker to make your opponent discard a card. Destroy Evil, two mana removal spell that kills an enchantment or high toughness creature. Herborg Repossession, the raised dead with kicker to get another permanent back. Um, and Repossession also gains life. Salvage Mana Worker, the one three that can filter your mana. Gaia's Might, the pump spell. Keldon Strike Team, the 3-1 that can kick to make 2-1-1s, and Haste, and Miri's Outrider, the 4-4 reach that does damage equal to uh, your domain to your opponent. Those were kind of the top performing cards in domain, uh, or in five-color decks, the top performing commons. Notably, there was a significantly different group of those that were the best performing among top players versus the best performing among all players. And notably, like they they divided themselves very cleanly. The best performing cards among top players were your Shadow Prophecies, Espionages, Destroy Evils, Repossessions. And the best performing cards among all players, Gaia's Might, Keldon Strike Team, Maria's Outrider, Vine Shaper Prodigy, Talos Lookout. So the more aggressive board presence cards were good among all players and the spell type removal and card draw stuff were successful among top players. That's somewhat interesting, not terribly surprising. I think the fact that it makes sense to me makes it more interesting than some of the like top player versus not top player stuff that I've looked at. 
I think that, you know, navigating how to, you know, live while playing your card draw, what to do with your removal, how to time your instance and stuff is generally a little harder than navigating, you know, just like playing creatures. But I think kind of the thing that this really points to more for me is just getting back to the idea that these really are different decks, not just like, you know, the blue green domain decks that are trying to cast all the colors of spells versus like the red green decks that are using the different land types. But even within that, if you're casting all the different spells, are you casting all the different spells in a proactive, aggressive way that's going to take really good advantage of Outrider? Or are you casting the different spells in a really grindy opponent's life total doesn't really matter type way like, say, I would be more inclined to do? It's not so much that one approach is necessarily uh, strategically better than the other. It's just that they're different and you want to be aware of like, am I, you know, the aggressor or am I the control deck? This is to say even your kind of like five color value piles should still have a plan. You should understand what your role is going to be. You should understand how your cards work together. You should understand how these fit into your game plan. It's most of what I had to discuss. Um, random note, I've come down considerably on Flurifer's Vinewall from where I started in this format. Now, I, I think that it's almost always worse than Impulse. Um, like they both look at a bunch of cards to try to find colors that you're missing. But in the late game or even in the early game, impulse never misses and can find your bombs and also is an instant. I think all of that matters more than getting the O2 body, which uh, doesn't matter very much unless you have some explicit synergies, at which point I am interested in the vine wall. I think things that can put vine wall over for me are... Like if I'm playing Necromass and I really value the creature going to the graveyard instead of the instant going to the graveyard, then uh, Vinewall moves up relative to Impulse. And then, of course, if you really, really need the fixing of seeing two extra cards to find your mana, Vinewall does that. But at that point, I think like you're desperate enough that uh, Salvage Mana Worker might be more what you're looking for. Even though this deck, you know, I talk about it as base blue-green, because blue and green offer the best fixing. You have like the pixie that can change land types and impulse and espionage in blue. And then you have all sorts of things in green. You don't need to be really heavily both or either of those, as long as you properly prioritize the colorless sources of that effect, um, like mana worker and relic of legends or prioritize very highly the fixing in the one of blue and green that you choose to prioritize. So I think part of why Flurifer's Vinyl dropped for me is just getting a more appreciation for Pixie and Salvage Mana Worker and the other ways of accomplishing what it was uh, trying to do for me. And also just taking two mana off in addition to playing a bunch of tap lands to play a creature that doesn't really block very well uh, has increasingly resulted in just feeling too far behind as another uh, strike against the Vine Wall. I think while a little scattered, I think that covers what I had to say. I imagine this 
left a good amount of room for questions and further exploration and examination. So I want to open this up to chat for questions now. So any questions you have, uh, please type in chat. And while I'm letting people do that, as usual, I'll remind everyone uh, if you are enjoying and learning from and benefiting from the podcast, uh, consider giving back and supporting us at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Uh, alternatively, if you have less selfless motives, fully respect that. Uh, we also we do offer some benefits and uh, perks. So if you're just looking for whether the value is right for you on uh, joining the Patreon, I would still encourage you to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes and see if the offerings that we have feel like a good exchange to you. So chat, any questions for me? When I looked at the stats for five color decks, did I include the four color plus splash decks? As I understand that 17 lands count a deck as five color, it must have four cards of each color. So I was looking to just kind of get a basic idea of like, you know, what top commons there were. Uh, there are a lot of different filters on 17 lands that point to decks in this space. Um, certainly all the four color and splash decks all of the you know blue green decks will usually have cards in other colors i didn't do a really extensive deep dive of you know all the different options and um which cards they like relative to each other it is certainly the case that uh yeah that there are a lot of different filters you can apply there that will show you different things and you know recommended homework if you're interested in a deep dive there figuring out you know which cards are better and worse in different versions of this at a certain point it gets a little bit too granular to really be helpful but there was certainly more investigation that could have been done there more general question but when to take lands and when to take playables yep that's a classic. Uh, the answer for me is prioritize the things that you're trying to cast over the things that you will let you cast them. But trying to cast means, you know, I actively, it means something to me to be able to cast this. Like my, my deck will be considerably better because I can cast this card, you know, so like ab relevantly above replacement level. Once you don't care if you can cast a card, uh, is in it's about as good as any other card you might be casting then that's a pretty clear sign that you should take the land and then beyond just well premium then fixing then replaceable i would point back to the discussion uh that i mentioned about kind of um the ongoing conversation with your deck and your draft and your table about your uh requirements and your capacity to fill those requirements and thinking about it in terms of like building and releasing pressure and you know the more you take cards that stretch your mana base the more you're building pressure the more you take cards that fix and uh, give you that mana the more you're releasing pressure and you'll kind of get a sense after a few drafts of how much pressure a deck can handle and when you're on pace and when you're not. And if you find yourself falling behind and generally not able to accommodate all the pressure that you're putting on your mana base, then prioritize those releases over those higher requirements. What are the best ways to kind of get into this archetype? What cards do I want to open to really go for this? Some cards 
directly tell you to in that they have like, you know, domain or something. But for the most part, it's really about, you know, you start somewhere a little bit more reasonable and just as you see strong cards that don't naturally fit into the same colors as the strong cards that you have, you add more colors, add more pressure, need to find more, you know, ways to release that pressure, more fixing, then having the more fixing means your mana base is more stable, more resilient, can handle more pressure. So kind of the more you go in this direction of, uh, you know, being able to cast up, the more you can slide into just, I'll take the strongest card every pack. So it, it's less this card puts you here and more these three cards put you here. Um, like uh, if you take Archangel of Wrath, uh, you might be a Mardu deck. You might be a white-black deck, a white-red deck, one of them splashing the other. Or you might be a full five-color deck. And which one of those you're supposed to be after you first pick Archangel of Wrath depends on whether, you know, second pick, you see a missionary or you see a Neshoba Brawler or a Weatherseed Treaty or some kind of card that tells you that, you know, you'll benefit from playing more colors in a way that will still let you use that strong card that you already had. There are not a lot of cards that by themselves say you should play all the colors. Are blue-black XXX and green-black XXX considered additional separate archetypes? So this gets into a topic that maybe I first dove into with the Demir decks in Strixhaven, where the name of the archetype is kind of more about the philosophy that you have when you're drafting it than it is about exactly which colors you end up playing. So I would say for me, as I think about it, the blue-black X decks are very card draw and removal heavy, relatively creature light, but looking for some, you know, Tolarian Terror and Talus Lookout, you know, good high impact uh, threats and generally very controlling. Like, so blue-black X is a Tolarian Terror deck. Green-black X is a Writhing Necromast deck that's generally looking to do a lot with its graveyard, kind of as much like self-mill and recursion and big high-impact creatures as possible. And then blue-green is more about generally having powerful cards. It's lower synergy and more uh, even mix of creatures and spells. Like blue-black is going to be spell-heavy, green-black is going to be creature-heavy, Blue-green is going to be somewhere in the middle. But again, some of that's just speaking to how I approach and categorize these things personally, which may or may not fit for other people. But that's that's kind of how I've been approaching it. And then, you know, if you talked about green-red X, that to me implies aggression, implies your opponent's life total matters. You want some tricks and you want some reach. And green-white X implies that you're not very likely to win the draft and you're probably trying to go wide. Um, I say this is the archetype that, yeah, this is, I I think that both of my decks for the arena open uh, where I won the 2,500 
I would say both of my decks were blue-green decks. Looks like we're about done on questions, so I'm going to wrap it up there. We have a few more weeks before we'll probably have enough information to get into the next set. I know that I still need to talk about blue-red tricks, which uh, was the other option that tied with this topic on the poll this week. Then I need to figure out if or how I feel like I can or should talk about some of the things that I haven't gotten to and don't have a lot of experience with uh, or haven't really seen a ton of success with, uh, like green, white, and red, black. I suspect that I think red, black has seemed more viable to me than green, white, but I'm not completely sure what will make sense. There's, it's possible that we will get into cube or something after the after next week, which will most likely be uh, blue red tricks, and then we'll certainly be in the home stretch on this. And then for the next set, we're going to be back to paper pre-release before online release, which means that the rollout is going to be a little bit different in terms of when we get what kind of information. And I'm probably going to try to uh, have an episode that at least looks at an overview of the format before the paper pre-release. So significantly before we can actually, I'll have actually played the deck on Arena. And then there will be a week where I will have played with it before, I'll have played in the paper pre-release before the set is out on arena so looking forward to some uh early overview and early you know first impressions type episodes for brothers war as we get done with dominaria united so thanks for listening and i'll be back next week for what may or may not turn out to be the last episode on dominaria united have a good week